Douglas gives you so many great asides while you're reading. From the fact that the person who is uh, operating a construction crew may be descended from Genghis Khan. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the only uh, leftovers genetically is that he has a propensity for little fur hats. I love it. Hi, and welcome to another Throwbacks episode of the Gen X Replay podcast. This is Stephanie, and Frankie is back with me today as usual to talk about a pop culture topic that heavily influenced us as Gen Xers. Today is a very special and slightly longer episode as we welcome Peter Flahiff, host of the Daily Good podcast, who is excited to join us to talk about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and its author, Douglas Adams. Well, we're back with another throwbacks this week, and we've got a special treat. I'm really excited. Uh, We're changing things up just a little bit with having more voices in play. And Frankie, I would like you to introduce our guest and the topic we'll be talking about today. Well, we're going to welcome Peter Flahiff to the the podcast this afternoon. And Peter is a world-renowned swing dancer. Awesome. I have admired for years as a dancer. And I wouldn't say that Peter and I are necessarily like uh, close friends. We're aware of each other, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) I would say we share jokes online occasionally. And I think we're both aware that we have some of the same, uh, some of the same enjoyments from our generation that will cross paths from time to time. And we have a lot of people in common. Yeah. But uh, Peter also hosts a fantastic podcast that he has started in the last year called The Daily Good, which I highly encourage our listeners to check out. And I know for a fact from uh, years of observing him that this subject is near and dear to his heart as well as it is to mine. Uh, Both of us, I don't know if you know this, Peter, but both of us uh, like uh, had a love of English coming up and we both uh, thought about being English teachers at different points in time in our life. I did not know that about you. And uh, we both have this Anglophile aspect of who we are in terms of some of the writers that we have followed after. And uh, this one in particular, you know, struck me in such a way. And it was such a part of my life. And it's one of those things that I have revisited many times. I don't know if you would say the same thing, but we'll come back to it so many times. And we're talking about specifically... The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Yes, indeed. Easily one of the greatest comedic science fiction novels of our generation. Uh, You know, it's birthed as a radio drama in the 70s. So Mm -hmm. unlike a lot of things that tend to go from book to whatever other format that they go to, it started as a radio drama, worked its way around to being a book, and has been rewritten a couple of times by the author during that time frame where he would come back and, and make little changes. And then it's, of course, been a TV series in 1981. It's been a feature film in 2005. They're talking about it being a TV series again for Hulu in the next right. year or so. Right. So it's, it's had a lot of different iterations. And uh, with our generation and where things have started, I'm going to kick it over to Peter because I'm curious... Do you remember when you were introduced to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Vividly. (laughs) I I was actually 
I was like, I wonder if he's going to ask me exactly the question that you just asked me, because <laughs> I can I can tell you my first encounter with Hitchhikers, which was sort of a glancing blow. Mm. Um, it was it was the TV series that you mentioned that that was broadcast in 81. And yeah. uh, they brought it over to the States on PBS maybe a year or two later. And uh, this is going to sound weirdly specific, but I, I have my reasons. It would have been a Saturday morning that I first came across it because I remember I was, I had been downstairs in my house uh, here in Washington state as a kid. And I was coming upstairs to get something out of my bedroom. And my older brother, Joseph was in front of the TV watching something. And as I came up the stairs, he turned around and he said, Hey, you should come and watch this. You'd really like it. It's a show called the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I went, Eh, and I, you know, went off to my room because I remember thinking as a little kid, it sounds like kind of a boring, maybe it's a travel show, maybe it's an astronomy right. show, like maybe <laughs> yeah. it's science, I don't, I don't know, whatever. And so I just let it go. And then a year or two later, uh, a friend of mine from a program in school handed me a copy of the book and he said, you should read this. This is hilarious. And I read it. And like you said, it it changed my life in ways that are so profound that it sounds silly to talk about it sometimes <laughs> because, you know, and you, you take my meaning, uh, it's just a book. It's just a comic novel and it shouldn't by rights be that significant in someone's life. But for me, it was funny in a way that I had never come across before. It was, it was my first real exposure to the, mm -hmm. British comic sensibility, very dry, very smart, but also absurd and silly at the same time. And it was, it's that intertwining of the very, very intelligent and the ridiculously silly that it just, it sucker punches you every time. And, yeah. and I remember so clearly reading the first book, loving it to death being thrilled to find out that there were a couple of more books in the series because like i said this was 83 mm -hmm. yeah 83 so hitchhikers and restaurant at the end of the universe had both come out life the universe and everything had just come out in paperback so long and thanks for all the fish didn't exist yet yeah but but I, the other the other clear memory that i have as a kid coming coming into my love for these books was sitting on the bus reading i think it was life the universe and everything uh surrounded by my friends and laughing so hard, but not wanting to laugh out loud on a bus, you know, cause everyone else is just <laughs> chatting and I'm reading a book. And so trying to hold in the laughter and it was so painful, you know, tears rolling down my face and just the convulsions that your body has when you're laughing, but trying not to laugh. That was, that was my Genesis with, with hitchhikers. And it, it, like I said, it's, it's not too much to say that, Douglas Adams' sense of humor, especially through Hitchhikers, changed my life. It it allowed me a sense of humor that I don't think I would have had otherwise. And he definitely, um, I had already wanted to be a writer, yeah. I think, since I was five. And when I came across Hitchhikers, I was like, oh, I can actually write stuff that I think is funny. And maybe other people will think it's funny, too. That's interesting you, you say that. Yeah, yeah, the the first thing that pops in my head when you when you mentioned the fact that you connected with it in a way that you probably didn't connect with other types of humor, 
I remember when we were younger, so much of what we considered humor in the U.S. and that was targeted to us uh, as kids and teens was brainless humor. Yeah, it was <laughs> toilet humor or mm -hmm. college humor or, you know, stuff that didn't require a lot of thought. But or, yeah, or this was... you said if, if it was humor that was aimed to us as, you know, kids, as it uh -huh. were, it was so dumbed down yeah. as to be insulting. Like, I'm a kid. I'm not an idiot. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We were heavily marketed to as far as toy franchises as Gen Xers. So whenever sure. we uh, discovered something that spoke to us on a, a deeper level, and mm -hmm. you know, as a person who loved his English teachers, I think identifying with the rhythm of the language and how well things were said. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. if you love the English language, when you really discover certain uh, English writers and the, the way that they're able to be personable, but at the same time have such intelligence in what they're saying to you, yeah. it really speaks to you. You know, it, it really affects you. I remember having a sense of feeling like Douglas Adams' writing gave me permission to not hide my love of language. Yeah. Because... A little, a little background about me. As a, as a kid, I was, I was labeled gifted, which I, I is a label that I kind of kick against to this day because it's very, mm -hmm. it's got its own set of problems. Mm -hmm. uh, but because I had that label kind of tagged on me since I was, like I said, about five, I was, I was kind of suppressing a lot of my ability to to speak at a particular level or to write mm -hmm. at a particular level because I didn't want to. I didn't want to other myself away from the mm -hmm. friends that I had. I didn't want them to think of me as some brainiac or, or you know, smarty pants kid. I, I wanted my right. friends to still be friends with me. I can uh, relate to that. Right. I, I think a lot of us, uh, I think a lot of us, particularly, you know, nerds and geeks, uh -huh. uh, we, we go through that. And again, coming across British humor through Adams as my gateway drug, if you will, um, <laughs> it was that sense like you said, Frankie, of, oh my God, he uses the language so beautifully and unapologetically. And that's part of what makes it so damned funny. And that was, that was a revelation to me. And he's mm -hmm. a gateway drug for things like Neil Gaiman or, for sure. you know, uh, I liked T.H. White with the Once a Future King. Yeah, absolutely. He also had that similar, uh, conversational but very educated british style where you were felt like you were uh you were being included in on a sides right that it's a very specific style that you, you'll encounter with these types of writers where they're telling you the narrative but at the same time they're pulling these little pieces like a really great teacher who mm -hmm. you know the bibliography is there for you but they're not just referring you to the notes. They're feeding you the notes as you're right. moving forward in a way that makes you feel like you've really participated in the process and that you have an inside scoop on what's going on and that they make you feel that you're special in that way as the audience, even though they're probably doing it to every single person who's reading the book, but right. you feel that personal connection. Right. Well, it's, it's funny. This is just a, almost an aside that you mentioned Gaiman because 
uh, you know, I'm a fan, fan of his stuff too, because he's another genius yeah. writer who's, who kind of works the outside edges uh, of various genres. But my first exposure to Neil Gaiman was a book that he wrote about hitchhikers yeah. called Don't, Don't Panic, right? Yeah, Which was, yeah. you know, it's, it's billed on the cover as a companion to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But, you know, if we, we've, we've read it, it's basically the first biography of Douglas Adams that ever came out. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, you know, I bought that book when it came out and read it and reread it. And I, I literally uh, have my, my first copy. And you can see I've, I've oh. loved it to bits and pieces. Nice. Yeah, that's hard to find. That thing's out of print. It's wow. way out of print. That one's uh, hard to find. But because of that book when I would see many years later, other books with his name on it, I was like, oh, I'll check this guy's stuff out because he has a connection to my favorite writer of all time. And right. lo and behold, he's a genius himself. So what's funny for me is uh, the connection to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, like you, came from the 1981 TV series before the first book because I was a Doctor Who fan. Oh. And on Saturday afternoon, you were watching these versions of Doctor Who where they would kind of like slam all the episodes together and you would have three, four, five uh, Doctor Who episodes. And if it was a rainy Saturday, that was great. But they would also start wedging in other British sci-fi stuff within that same block on PBS. So my first exposure to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was within that block. And uh, Douglas Adams, who was a writer and uh, script coordinator for Doctor Who, you know, the voice that came through uh, from the work he had done there in the 70s was there because, you know, that's the stuff I was watching, the Tom Baker Doctor Who stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it was easy just to sit there and feel like I was hearing that same familiar voice coming through and who was talking to us. And it was from there, even before I still read the first book, that I found the audio book mm. that was on cassette tape that was read by the actor who was the voice of Marvin in the TV. Stephen Moore, right. Oh. Moore. Yeah. And so I listened to that tape to death before even the first time I cracked the cover of the book. Wow. That's a heck of an introduction. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was, but, I mean, it becomes an obsession, right? I mean, yeah. All, all the books that, that came out, I would snap them up as soon as I saw them on the shelf. It was better than Christmas to find a new Douglas Adams book on the shelf. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think around, I think it must have been around 86, just before my family moved to California. Uh, I found, I still don't know, I can't remember who reissued it, but they put out the original BBC radio series, the, the series one and two, on audio cassette. And so yeah. I, I bought those and, and that brought it to life uh, in a completely, you know, cause as you said, it was, it was the radio show first. So I felt like this was almost like behind the scenes, archeological <laughs> hitchhikers stuff, because he, as you mentioned, he, he basically rewrote everything. Every time he would go back to do it again, he would keep like everything up till the earth gets destroyed. And then from that point on, it's like all bets are off. You know, he just kind of yeah. riffed every time. And it was, it's just, it, he was always so inventive. And there were always these phenomenal bits in every iteration, just mind boggling. And as a Douglas Adams fan, I feel like we're more accepting of seeing the story in different mediums 
because of his desire to constantly keep hacking at it himself. Yep. And it wasn't like he was disavowing anything he had done before, but it was like you were constantly getting it like it was a special sci-fi comedy Bible. Right. That was getting reissued to you multiple times. And so you were <laughs> right. always curious to see what it was he was going to do. Where in other fan circles, there are people who any deviation from the book is unacceptable. Right. You know, or comic fans who will not accept the character being portrayed any way other. And that's something, I, I think this is fascinating and I'd love to hear what you guys have, have to say about this too, but I feel like for, for me and for probably for us being of, of the same, you know, like you said, Gen Xer uh, nerds, I grew up reading comic books and understanding the concepts of A, alternate universes, and B, just series reboots. Those were just kind of normal in the comic book world. That just happened all the time. And mm -hmm. you learn to just go, oh, they're, they're going back and they're reimagining this entire thing. Maybe they'll keep some of the same characters, maybe they won't, but they're just gonna retell everything. And you just get yeah. to, it's, it's every, every creative person who does a reboot or a, or an alternate universe thing gets to have their crack at, well, what if we kept these characters and did it this way? What if Thor was an alien instead of a Norse God? You know, all these different <laughs> riffs that I always found fascinating. Like that's part of what made me excited to be a writer is you, you do get to just what if everything in the world yeah. all the time. So like you said, with Douglas, constantly rewriting the story from radio series to the books to the computer game which i played as a nerdy <laughs> little kid too uh right. you know to four maybe yeah exactly yeah. and then you know so when the when the movie came out there were a lot of well-meaning i think fans of the book who like you said we're up in arms about, you know, all these changes and all the, the how different it was from the books. And I, I kept mm -hmm. like wanting to raise my hand and be like, do you know anything about Douglas Adams? Like he did those changes. Those were his. He added most of all of the stuff that's different in the movie. That was all him. Yeah. I, I remember hearing a, an interview with, oh, who was it that basically took over to help write the screenplay after he passed away? Whoever the guy was from, mm -hmm. from Ardman, maybe Nick Park. I don't know. I, I'd have to look it up. Yeah. I totally forgot. Google. There you go. <laughs> whoever whoever the guy was, I remember him saying, I wasn't gonna change anything. Right. Because Douglas Adams is a genius. You don't change that. What I did was just kind of go in and streamline it so that it would be easier to film because mm -hmm. I know how to write a screenplay. That's my thing. So that was what he figured was his his responsibility. And I, I respect that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I would even say that a, a story writer who is able to hack their story is able to allow it to evolve uh with the current culture and and bring in concepts that just didn't exist in the original writing so you know comic books do that wonderfully by bringing in modern culture every time there's a reboot yeah. um and i feel like adams was doing that over the course of of the life of that story too absolutely well, they always say, you can change what you want as long as you don't lose what the truth of the narrative is supposed to be. Yeah. And uh, you can reimagine your heroes as long as you don't lose sight of the archetype, as long as you don't, you know, as long as you're able to look through 
the surface of the pool to see the pebbles on the bottom. As long as you can still see the truth of what's there, mm-hmm. you're, you're, in, you're in safe hands. You know, I think it's when people start bending the things that the, that the creation is actually supposed to be about, that's where you get into trouble. Right. But, yeah. Yeah. but you know, these, these things are meant to evolve and breathe over time. And I, I, you know, he, because of how it came about, because it was something else before it was a book, I think it played into making that a lot easier. Yeah, for yeah, sure. I completely agree. Um, so for those who listen to this, who uh, are Gen Xers who have somehow not managed to hear about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, <laughs> we are embarrassed for you. Yes, but <laughs> you have my condolences. <laughs> you haven't heard my story yet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we still love you. What is it, Steph? <laughs> oh, no, I was going to say that even though I knew of The Hitchhiker's Guide for many, many years, it wasn't until the more recent film iteration that I decided I need to finally read this. Uh, And I knew the history. I knew that it didn't start as a book, Uh, but I started, that's where I started. And because I was really into audiobooks at the time, I found the audiobook read by the author. So that was my actual first experience is so what was that Douglas what Adam, was it like Adam's for you going that direction like going starting with the movie and then hearing the book how was that oh I didn't actually see the movie I knew the movie was coming oh okay, oh, okay so I went it. ahead and read it before the movie okay cool. uh, but yeah looking at it side by side and knowing that the movie was different but also having taken time to understand that Adams was part of creating that film as well uh early on mm-hmm. it made me very accepting and loving of what they did in the film um and i thought it was very true to the characters yeah. in the story so uh i fell in love with it so you know i have my little knitted zephod yes. rocks uh yeah and and of course i showed you the audiobook and i even um once a year uh you know had to don my robe and carry my towel into work and I had this little journal with don't panic on the front that I carried with me so it's a actual holiday date now in May (laughs) I felt I was late to the party but at the same time I feel like I had a chance to catch up and really the good news is that the door is always wide open at that party so you can just wander in whenever (laughs) yeah it was actually uh almost exactly a year ago now last halloween mm-hmm. uh myself and my now wife and our friend nick were going to go to disneyland and they were going to get all dressed up and nick was going to go as han solo and he's got his whole thing and i i'm not generally much of a of a halloween person it's just never been a, a huge thing for me for whatever reason but last year i remember i was driving around a couple of days before and i was like what am i going to do like am i just going to just <laughs> not put on a costume i'll just walk around with my my fiance and my best friend and just take pictures of them and then it hit me i own a bathrobe yep i i have a towel so (laughs) i just did that i just you know got dressed got dressed up if you will if you can call it that as arthur and just wandered around with han solo which was a hilarious pairing in my mind i saw some of the pictures it was really fun (laughs) i was like this is gonna be my costume for the rest of my life because (laughs) and and what what i loved was how many people just random people walking around disneyland got it you know that 
some somebody in a bathrobe with a towel and that was all i had to indicate the character uh would yell things at me like thanks for all the fish you know things like that so good stuff that's great yeah and the film kind of just closes off the story too it's written to be a complete narrative into itself whereas as we know the uh the first and second novel do tend to meander a little bit yeah because he 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 wasn't even sure what he was writing it (laughs) right that's one of my one of my favorite uh one of my favorite stories that he used to tell was I wrote the first series and at the end of it, I gave it a very definite ending. You know, a bunch of the people are killed and then two of the other main characters are stranded on earth millions of years ago and fade into the sunset. And then the BBC asked for another series and he's like, Oh, okay. Cause it's becoming really popular. So he wrote the second series and he deliberately left it wide open at the end with all these loose ends. And they said, you're canceled. And that was it. <laughs> Son of a. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I so... remember reading, and I, I don't know if it's, I, I, I'm not really quite sure what the like um, cross influence connection inspiration is. Uh, but I, you know, when I consumed it, I was thinking in my mind, this is very Python-esque type humor because I was a huge Monty Python fan for many, many As years. As you should be. And, uh, and so, so, so I was wondering kind of what that tie-in was in terms of, of comedic history, because there was a lot of very similar uh, rhythms and patterns in the humor. There's, uh, a, there's a, quite a bit, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Douglas said that he, when he first came across Python, Mm-hmm. Had, a, had a similar response to them as I had to him of mm. these are people who are very, very smart and very, very silly and mm. they're getting away with it. And so as, as he said, uh, he spent the next several years uh, trying really hard to be John Cleese until he realized that the part was taken. <laughs> uh, but good. he wound up... Uh, he wound up actually working with Graham Chapman for a while. They they wrote some stuff together. This was unfortunately while Graham was at one of the real low points in his life with alcoholism. Yeah. Uh, but that there was a connection there. And on the last season of Python, when Cleese had actually already left the group to go do other things, right. and they were still kind of trying to drag it along, Douglas is actually on screen at least once, maybe twice. I think he's on screen once as one of the pepper pot women in one scene. And there's okay. another there's another scene uh, in a doctor's office where he's behind a you know a face mask with a, with oh, a hat. Okay. Uh, and the scene never really gets off the ground. But he was he was actually on screen on Python technically twice. So he definitely ran in the same circles as those guys. Oh. Yeah. Um, but he, he had he had gone to Cambridge for his university, which is the same place that a lot of the Pythons had gone through and he was a member of the Footlights Review that several of them had passed through as well. Ah, okay, Uh, yeah. Yeah, and then of course he became very good friends with Terry Jones of the Pythons and they wound up collaborating. Yeah. 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 Good stuff. John Cleese was in one of the Doctor Who episodes that he was involved with, uh, City of Death. I did not know that. uh, Yeah. He is a patron at a museum, and the TARDIS lands in the museum, and he and the lady with him 
do the whole thing where they're interpreting what type of art it represents. You know, that's the whole bit that he does. Right. For the episode. But yeah, that's. <laughs> and now I'll have to go and watch that. City of Death. Possibly yeah. the, the finest Doctor Who thing he was involved with. I would okay. Yeah. I would say. Frankie, I want to circle back because I completely interrupted you earlier when you were saying, when you were speaking to the people of our generation who haven't oh. actually been able to experience it. Well, I was, I was going to get into us just kind of going through and uh, dissecting some of the characters and, and yeah. general plot points since this is something that was created in the early part of our generation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if when it comes to spoiler warnings, <laughs> right? <laughs> and several decades now, get right. yep. yeah. we're getting yeah. into Every, that now. <laughs> everyone, if you haven't read the books, you know, just shut the podcast do off. It now. Go Good. have the most blissful afternoon of your life reading the book and then come back. <laughs> yes. But, you know, the character that uh, describing himself dressed as while uh, adventuring in Disneyland, Arthur Dent, who uh, has the worst possible uh, Thursday of his life, you know, that we get introduced to at the beginning of a novel where he finds out his home is going to get demolished for a bypass. You know, he had been very upset about it, gotten drunk about it the night before, had tried to do anything he could to stop it. You know, and we come into a novel with him uh, lying in front of a bulldozer trying to prevent his house from being taken down. Right. The world's a, about to end and he's a, laying in front of a bulldozer. It's a great start for a comic novel. <laughs> and, you know, and like we can just hit on the high points, but for anybody listening, and we were talking about asides, Douglas gives you so many great asides while you're reading from the fact that the person who is uh, operating the constru- construction crew may be descended from Genghis Khan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the only th- and one of the only uh, leftovers genetically is that he has a propensity for little fur hats. I love it. <laughs> Those random stuff that you're getting included for these like side details that do they contribute to the actual narrative? No, but they're fun to have. You know, yeah, they, they yeah. fill things out, they flesh the characters out, and they're hilarious. Yeah. Super hilarious. And uh, the introduction of Ford Prefect, you know, which I enjoyed so much from the original TV series. Yeah. You know, and I've heard Douglas didn't care for the series that much. My, my understanding of that is that the guy who was the director was not, Douglas didn't feel he, he understood the show or the or, or the ideas behind it well enough and that he was just kind of trying to take it in random directions that Douglas didn't particularly ag- agree with uh, mm. and I I mean I, I can kind of see that but at the same time for those of us that grew up on the on the tv show I've got such a soft spot in my heart for it regardless yeah. that I just I don't care like it, mm. he he did a good job given the the budget constraints and the and the special effects constraints of the BBC in the late seventies and early eighties, mm-hmm. uh, but he did get it on screen and it was very faithful, you know. And Arthur Dent, the actor who played Arthur Dent originally in the TV series, who also did it in the audio, Douglas wrote the part for him. Yeah, really? that's the thing a lot of people don't know. The actor yeah. in the TV series who also did the radio plays, he was a friend of Douglas, and Douglas Mm -hmm. had him in mind, thought about how he would say things when he wrote the character. 
That's and it really worked. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. with the with the the writing partnership that Douglas had had with Graham Chapman, they had filmed a pilot for a TV series that never went anywhere. Yeah, and the main male lead in that TV show was uh, Simon Jones, the the character of Simon Arthur Benton. Yeah, that's amazing. But Ford Prefect, and like I just dist- I distinctly remember that sweater vest from my childhood that he's wearing. Yep. He walks in. <laughs> The outfit and the suit and the snappy repartee Absolutely. of his delivery of getting Mr. Prosser confused, getting Mr. Prosser to lay down in front of the, the bulldozer so they can go sneak away and have something to drink. Yep. Yeah. And, and what's funny, you know, uh, with all due respect to the film, I had a hard time imagining anybody else's Ford Prefect. That's, mm-hmm. that's the trick, of course, is when... I, I think, like you just said, Simon Jones, who was the radio Arthur, was also the the television Arthur, and that was one of the great things about the TV series, in my opinion, was yeah. So many of the radio actors just came and and did it again on TV. Like Mark Wing Davy was Zaphod in both. Yeah. Uh, you know, Arthur was Arthur in both. They had the same narrator uh, doing the books. Uh, Peter Jones. And it is hard when when they I, I felt that Martin Freeman was a stroke of genius he was as Arthur. I liked Mos Def a lot because mm-hmm. he played the character a little kind of spacey and odd. And I thought mm-hmm. that that actually kind of works for me. He was it alien. was a, yeah. it was yeah, it was alien and it was it was a very different take on the character. I, I was more okay with his interpretation of Ford than I was with Sam Rockwell's version of Zaphod, which I felt hmm. was a little, a little too much of a trying to parody. George Bush pastiche. George Bush, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I, I love Sam Rockwell, and I think he's a phenomenal actor, but it was a little too much of a we're taking the piss out of George W. But mm. it was still good. I mean, it was still good. I still love yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I know what you mean about about the Ford character and just the, the minute that you meet him, you're like, yep, he's my guy. <laughs> mm. He's awesome. And the dialogue is so phenomenal to go back and reread that dialogue yep. and just the, the turnarounds and not to get into it too heavy, but uh, the fact that they get to the bar, you know, they're having the drinks, the conversation, even with the bartender, you know, like offering him all the money he has, you know, like right. you've got five minutes to spend it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's just genius. It's absolute genius. And there's some great uh, there's some great dialogue lines that have been quoted for years that you can find uh, in wiki quotes and in Google when they describe the alien spaceships arriving and how they hang in the sky exactly the way bricks don't. Yep, that was <laughs> that's one of those lines that when I read it as a kid, I was like, "This is so funny and so different." It's so it's, smart. It's incredible. Yes. And so, you know, and the thing I remember being fascinated with when you think about the Hitchhiker's Guide itself as an idea, as an object, mm-hmm. and thinking, yeah, this amazing encyclopedia that you're just carrying around in your hand before the advent of smartphones and what mm-hmm. we would be. Now, okay, Peter, I got to ask you, when you got your first serious smartphone, how quickly did you look to find hitchhiker skins for it? The immediately, <laughs> immediately. Yeah, 
Yeah. And, <laughs> and I will, I will from time to like right now, my, uh, my lock screen is a, is a very lovely photograph of myself and my wife kissing in front of the Eiffel Tower. Sure. Aww. But uh, <laughs> when it's not pictures like that, it's just the words don't panic. Nice. Yeah. They're on the screen, you know, and it's so, so Douglas was a huge technophile. Yeah. Loved all things technological, was a huge early proponent of Apple products. Big time Apple. Uh, yeah. And I mean, aside from the obvious tragedy of him dying so young, and aside mm -hmm. from the obvious tragedy of we'll never get another Douglas Adams book again, for me, one of the real tragedies of his passing is that he passed away before he could see The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy actually come true in the form of our smartphones. Like, all the way down to yeah. the, the way he describes the book the very first time in the book, uh, you know, although it contains many omissions and has much that is apocryphal or at least wildly inaccurate, like, yeah, that's the <laughs> internet. That is 1000% what we deal with every day when we go yeah. online. It's, it's full of crap, but we still <laughs> refer to it because it's slightly cheaper. You can kind of picture Ford as being uh, an author for some obscure website uh, who's sure. covering like news that nobody follows. <laughs> yep. <Absolutely. laughs> and carrying around a little iPad, like jotting his notes down. For sure. That's one of the great bits in the book is that they edited down his contribution for his update to Earth to yeah. mostly harmless. Mostly, mostly harmless. harmless. <laughs> exactly. So uh, my, my little brother will forever be enamored with Vogon prosthetic jelts, Vogon. Uh, <laughs> you know, from the Vogon constructor fleet, which he does something here that I've seen in a lot of uh, British sci-fi and comedy, which is you have the macrocosm is a direct reflection of the microcosm. Right. I see it all the time in Doctor Who. They, mm -hmm. Like, I see it all the time in a lot of those styles of sci-fi where whatever the small story is, the man lying in front of his bulldozer is immediately really reflected, you know, with whatever the cosmic thing is that is going on on a larger scale. Right. And so you get some sort of uh, pathos between the two things that are happening. And, uh, and the Vogon commander, you know, I, I think it was even just... Uh, within the last year that I sent uh, Vogon poetry to Peter. Yep. An instant <laughs> message. <laughs> yes, indeed. And it's, and then, you know. And their, their ears covering their ears. Oh my God. Uh -huh. oh. <laughs> and it's, you know, uh, for whatever reason, it's still stuff that is committed to memory. <laughs> you know, like. Could, could I sing the Star Spangled Banner? No. Can I give you the preamble to the Constitution? Most of it. Could I give you the entirety of Prostechnik Vogon Jeltz's poetry that he said? Yeah, absolutely. Word for word. Yep. You know, because that's the stuff that I listened to on repeat, you know, on my tape player. I just kept playing the cassettes yeah. over and over again. And it's, it's All right. Well, before you start quoting, I'm going to go grab a Pangalactic Gargle Blaster. Yes. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you're in the ready frame of mind. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I've been in a workshop situations where friends are recording things in the DJ world and they'll run through the first thing that they say and then they'll follow it with a, and see if I don't. 
Yes. <laughs> See Love it. Out. You know Love where it. it's coming from. Yep. So That's good. That's really good. You know, I don't know. I This was a situation where the, the comedy was uh, kind of gender balanced toward males. Mm -hmm. uh, but you had like almost a token female in there, but he didn't make her token at all. Right. Uh, she was smart and sassy. Uh, she had a cool nickname, Trillian. And um, she I had her own cats. mind of what she wanted out of all of this adventure that she was on. Uh, and with such a contrast to yeah. other sci-fi where you know, it, it seemed like so many female characters were secondary uh, and just following, towing the line or, or just there for being the female uh, in the story. I mean, class classically, you know, most of the, the Doctor Who companions tend to kind of fall into that category of mm. they're, they're kind of there to be uh, sounding boards for, mm -hmm. for the Doctor to have his ideas and his and, and stuff off of. And as you said, Trillian uh is a is a fully formed person of her own uh mm -hmm. who actually spends a large part of the time just kind of puncturing zaphod's ego which is <laughs> phenomenal and <I> love it. <laughs> needed yes <laughs> now i'll give you a slight contrast in the the film portrayals of the character because you there's always Chanel who very lovely plays the character in the 2005 movie is a very modern woman mm -hmm. in how yeah. she plays the yeah, character that's true. she's very she's very tongue-in-cheek in managing the male character's foibles and an idiocy and how she almost handles them in right. certain ways mm -hmm. to get through what's going on now the original actress from the tv series who is mm -hmm. was actually at the time peter davison who was the fifth doctor's wife Mm -hmm. Wow, you know, uh, but it, they they'd since separated. But their daughter is now married to the tenth Doctor, David Tennant. <laughs> there you go. It all circles back. <laughs> all circles back. Yeah. But she played the character as one of those uh, ladies who puts on a little bit of a bimbo thing, but is really very smart, and you can tell she's doing it you know, almost as a, as a bit, you know, right. uh -huh. the reality right. is she's being right. sharp and shrewd and how she's getting things the way she wants them to be done. And uh, yeah, cause she would do kind of the high pitched girly, you know, voicey thing when she was, when she was playing it around. But I mean, and both of them were playing the character as the character was written, but they were adding mm -hmm. in different uh, aspects of personality for sure. For sh absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, and I remember reading somewhere that, that, uh, it was it was an unusual casting choice because she was American. Sandra Dickinson is an oh. is an American actress, was an American actress. Yeah. Uh, and Douglas said, you know, in in hindsight, she probably could have done a a perfect British accent had we asked her to, but we all liked what she was doing with the character so much that it never occurred to anybody to ask her to even do that. We just allowed her to stay in the American accent, which was interesting. Yeah, sort of surprising. So the guys get thrown off the Vogon ship. We do get to encounter <laughs> Trillian and Zaphod in uh, the most improbable starship that has ever existed in terms of the heart of gold. 
which uh, works on what's referred to as the improbability drive, which the can infinite improbability, the drive. infinite improbability drive. And like you get a lot of great asides there. Just the creation of how it came into being is fantastic. With, uh, yes. <laughs> without ruining it too much for people. But uh, the, uh, the way that we get to meet Zaphod and Trillian is uh, brought about also with another great character, which is Marvin the robot. Woo. Marvin. You know, Marvin the paranoid android. And, and Marvin, you know, if you listen to the audiobooks, it's, it's kind of like people who pay for cable to hear Eric Cartman's voice in the early 2000s. <laughs> right. You know, just listening to someone do Marvin properly is, is worth the price of admission alone. Absolutely. <laughs> Alan Rickman, of course, famously did him in the movie. Another phenomenal casting choice for the movie, as far as I was yes. concerned. Oh, Absolutely. yeah. Oh, yeah. man. So good. The, I think for me, with, with the movie casting, the, the three that made me happiest were Martin Freeman for, for Arthur, Alan yeah. Rickman as Marvin, and getting Stephen Fry to be the book, the, the, yes. the narrator book, Brilliant. was so good. He, he doesn't sound exactly like uh, Peter Jones, Mm-hmm. But he's got the same delivery. He's got the same timing while still being Stephen Fry. And, yeah. and it, you know, of course, a lovely homage because he and Douglas were best Very of good, friends, man. too. Yeah, so. I heard about that. Yeah. yeah. If you haven't read Stephen Fry's uh, Mythos and Heroes yet. Have not. The audiobook. Yeah. It's very much in that same style of Douglas mm-hmm. and Neil Gaiman. Great. And that style of writing. And both of those books you will devour. Great. Yeah. It fits right in with everything else. Right on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, that voice of the guide, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of acts as a narration device through the books, through the, you know, and the visuals that are provided for it are phenomenal. And that's actually my favorite part of the television series. For sure. Are the guide visuals. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I remember... Uh, I got one episode on video, on VHS. Back in the old days, um, <laughs> I managed to catch, it was, it was actually the last episode of the TV series and I, and I recorded it. And I remember so many blissful hours in front of the VCR with the play pause, play pause, watching the, the computer graphics go by because they were packed with jokes and if you couldn't pause it oh, you, you wouldn't see them it's that's phenomenal great. wow it's like watching everything that's fun in a monty python movie that comes mm-hmm. by that's the, uh, the illustration stuff yeah <laughs> yes. you must have had that in mind oh yeah and i i can't not bring up the fact that the theme from the tv series and also again utilized in the movie mm-hmm. is an Eagles song. Right. <laughs> How incongruous is that for most of us that think of the Hotel California? <laughs> no, it's uh, from the, the One of These Nights uh, album, which was essentially the Eagles disco album. Right. <laughs> the, uh, when everybody was, re- was forced to record a disco album or die. Right. D- d- dabbling in prog rock and stuff. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, but... Journey of the Sorcerer is this bizarrely interesting instrumental track that's just all of a sudden in the middle of that album. Yep. And then how that becomes the thing 
for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And, you know, I didn't know this for a long time. You could, you know how every once in a while on Facebook, you'll see those uh, memes that'll say, like, I was this year as old when I found out this right. fact. <laughs> yeah. And that was one of those things for me. As much as I had loved and known about the Hitchhiker's World and Douglas Adams, I had never pitched those two things together. And I am a huge Eagles fan. Oh, okay. And it, and it was actually going back through the music and stopping and doing the whole... <laughs> I know this. What? I know this. Do I know this? Where's this from? Yes. <laughs> and how yeah, those it, moments. <laughs> but it's it's so iconic, like isn't it? If if you've if you've heard the the radio series at all, or if you watch the TV show, that song is just indelibly linked to Hitchhikers. It is mm. the song for that story. That's amazing. Mm. Yeah, I. I I found out that that was the the song because again in I think '87 or whatever I had the the first edition of this oh. when it came out, which oh, is nice. the original radio scripts, which again you know just kind of stumbled across it in a bookstore and lost my tiny kid mind <laughs> uh, because I had heard the radio you know I, I had them on cassette but now mm -hmm. I can read along and the scripts are full of Douglas's notes in between oh. the lines and then oh the that's gold every, it is and oh. at the at the end of, of every single episode there are footnotes dee, 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 oh, footnotes uh nice. that are all these historical tidbits of this is how this particular episode went out this is where mm. douglas found this song that's playing in the background this is the weird quirky thing that happened in the studio to one of the actors uh wow it's it was phenomenal and when my, like I said, when my family moved from up here in Washington down to California, uh, right when I was turning 13, so, you know, <laughs> the worst possible time to be relocating for the first time in your life and puberty's yeah. hitting and you're going into junior okay. high and, you know, and mm. already feeling nerdy and now I'm extra nerdy because I'm the uh, new kid in school and all the things, yeah. right? All the horrible mm -hmm. things. But I had Douglas's stuff that I loved. I had just gotten a copy of that and I went to the local library, the Palm Springs Public Library. And they had uh, records, record albums uh, that you mm. could check out. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a bunch of crap because it's a public library. But you know what they had? They had the BBC Stereophonic Effects Library on vinyl. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. So it was all the effects. Four double albums of sound effects from the BBC. So like wow. the, tar the TARDIS and the sonic mm -hmm. screwdriver, but also explosions and crowd applause and laughter, wow. like everything that they would use for radio shows. But they had sound effects from Hitchhikers nice. on there. So little nerdy me with my copy of the radio script and now <laughs> having the actual sound effects i went through and recorded the entire two radio series by myself in my bathroom with two tape decks oh, <laughs> and, the scripts and the sound effects yeah that's i wish awesome. i still had them i really wish i still had them because i was like i said 12 <laughs> or 13 years old and like trying to do all the voices and uh -huh. playing playing around with like putting my finger on the on the spindle of the of the tape recorder to slow it down so that my voice would play back faster and <laughs> it was it was a ball and when you're that age there's no one to tell you you can't do it exactly so you exactly. just go for it and it's like and those those kids who did the the frame for frame uh uh version of Raiders of the Lost Ark 
you know, yep. the, the Steven Spielberg and George Lucas just adore because yeah. no one told those kids they couldn't do it, that, that, that it wouldn't right. work. Exactly. Right. And, you know, for, for me, you know, sitting by myself in my, in my bathroom with, you know, my, my record player on my right and two tape decks on my left and the scripts in front of me and I'm hunched over on the, on the carpet uh, going, <laughs> okay, how do I, how do I make this work? It was, it was just really a fun challenge more than anything. And that's, that's yeah, that's really great. <laughs> yeah, the more I study uh, voice recording and as well as voice performance, um, the more I realize that you learn the most by just doing. Right. Um, you can you can take all the classes in the world, but until you get behind the mic and start talking or start performing, uh, that's not you know, that's when the lessons really take hold. And uh, it's amazing to hear you talk about getting those early experiences. So, you know, so young, <laughs> you know, you well, were already learning. <laughs> but like, like Frankie said, like, I just, no, nobody told me that that was a ridiculous thing to yeah. even attempt. So I was like, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had the same thing. I moved from North Carolina to South Carolina when I was 13. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Total nightmare. <laughs> Total nightmare. And I like, I found, uh, you know, I moved from a very like uh, nice, cushy suburban middle school to something that belonged on Dangerous Minds. Right. <laughs> and oh. Ended up hiding out in the library, and you know, made a lot of fast friends at that point in time. You know, people who I could talk to about science fiction, people I could play Dungeons and Dragons with on the weekend. Yes. Yep. You know, and it was yep. it was really a refuge. But at the same time, I was finding refuge in a place that encouraged my love of language and, you know, kind of fed that need. And she kind of came under the radar when she said it. But just so you know, Stephanie is also a voice actress. Ah, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> yeah, you know. so I'm just, she's repping <laughs> I'm that right there. <laughs> That's awesome. She's doing it. That's but awesome. uh, for, for the casual listener, you know, the number of asides in these, this book that we could stop and talk about that we don't have time to talk about. It's just <laughs> so numerous. Oh God, like, so much. As soon as I think about the heart of gold, I want to think about the doors that are overly polite. Yep. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just for a simple door to be able to open for you. Close for you. I, I just want to tell That's you my absolute job well done. Uh, my <laughs> absolute favorite casting uh, was John Malkovich. That was some good stuff. <laughs> Like, and that's original material right there. Right. Yeah. Talk about <laughs> creepy as. Holy cow. <sighs> and that was another thing when they were, when the film was in production and they said, Douglas has written or had written a, a character that doesn't appear in the books. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I'm not so sure. And then they said, and John Malkovich is lined up to play it. I was like, never mind. I'm fine with it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> On board. <laughs> Count me in. Achoo. So, Bless you. <laughs> yeah. Which again is is Douglas taking a bit from the original radio series in the book and then just blowing it up into a much larger part of mm -hmm. the narrative. Because that's just a, it's a throwaway bit in the in the original series about the you know the the race with the great green arkle seizure and all that. Yeah. And I was like, wow, he really made that made that compelling. He really kind of mm -hmm. extrapolated nicely. I was out showing houses about three weeks ago 
and they had gone into a new construction subdivision where the houses had not been built yet, but the streets had been named. Mm-hmm. And I stood in front of a sign for a good 10 minutes and my phone was dead because I was going to take a picture. And Peter, you were one of the people I was going to send the picture to. All right. <laughs> Someone had named one of the streets Magrathia. You're kidding me. That's amazing. And all I could think was, who is the sci-fi nerd that is involved with this development team? Right. Because yeah. that's, that's, that's unmistakable. Like, there's, that's not, yeah. there is no other context for that name besides hitchhikers that's amazing like the last time that it happened like uh i had been somewhere and found a street named botany bay and i took in a picture of it and sent it to my little brother who immediately called me and did the whole pavel checkoff right botany (laughs) bay oh no botany (laughs) bay you know the whole whole bit from the second star trek movie (laughs) so so that was the closest i'd come to that but when we we talk about you know, we find out what the Heart of Gold's mission is, is that they want to find Magrathia. They want to find this, this amazing planet that used to build planets. Mythical. Mm-hmm. Mythical. Mm-hmm. And one yeah. of my favorite lines from the book where they talk about the, the great days of the galaxy when men were real we- men and women were real women and small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri were real small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's uh there are sections of of his writing that I can recite by heart. Mm-hmm. That's one of them. Uh partially because that was uh on one of the other TV uh series episodes that I managed to catch and record, so like it's just it's in my brain. I can recite that. Uh I can recite the opening, you know, page of the book. It's it's <laughs> it sticks with you. His writing is so good, it just sticks. And he- there was always it was always packed with these little poignant quotes buried within like it was part of the story and the humor but if you looked at it by itself that one statement was really poignant Mm -hmm. uh and one of the ones describing zaphod was very poignant to anyone capable of getting themselves elected president was not uh, capable of doing the job yep. <laughs> that's brilliant yeah when you uh, can lift it out of the story and it's just and it's very stands. meaningful yeah. absolutely always always and to uh to know that when we uh when we get to the planet the whole sequence with the planet's alarm system going off and warning them not to approach the planet and then finally firing missiles at them and hoping that they have their business in the after, you know, in their next life, mm-hmm. you know, the whole sequence where the heart of gold, when Arthur decides that they should uh, use the, uh, the improbability drive. And we now turn one of the missiles into a potted plant and the other into a sperm whale mm. that has a very short period of time to come to terms with its existence and then to come to terms with no longer being in existence. <laughs> <laughs> Again, just genius, genius level writing. Yeah. Amazing uh, stuff. And the whole sequence of what the whale was thinking. Yeah. As it descends yeah. to the planet is just, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Don't make me quote it. I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so great. 
there's a great coffee mug that actually has the potted plant and the whale fall. Nice. That you can Aww. order online. My my wife has a has a t-shirt and it just has the the sperm whale falling on the front of it and just a little thought bubble that says, Why am I here? And I was like, I love <laughs> you so much. <laughs> so good. Now, I happen to know a friend who uh when we needed to get onto his laptop, the password to get onto his laptop is Slarty Bartfast. Nice. <laughs> nice. Another nice. good casting for that film, by the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh I think God. I think Bill Nye was was exactly the right uh yeah. right actor for that, for sure. Slarty Bartfast. But yeah, Bill Bill Nye Nighy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just genius. British actor, yes. Just genius. <laughs> Uh, and there, nice. there are a couple of uh, there are a couple of nods in the film that refer back. So, like Frankie was just talking about the the alarm system when they're approaching Magrathia that warns them, and in the movie, the, it's the it's the hologram head that's warning them to turn back. That is Simon Jones, who played Arthur Dent in the ah. TV series and on the radio. He had that cameo on screen in the film. And in the movie, when they're all, when they're queued up in the very, very bureaucratic, dank room, and there's all the different creatures in the line, they have the robot costume of Marvin from the original TV series that's in the queue. And I just jumping up and down in the theater, like, oh my God, you know, probably worrying everyone around me, but. (laughs) It's fantastic. It's amazing. (laughs) That's a lot of love and care. Exactly. Like, uh, in, that's in when you know making. that it's, yeah, that the filmmakers are obviously nerdy fans themselves, and that's what <laughs> you want. You know, the thing that I'm, I'm going to skip ahead just to say, yeah. uh, just to say, because it still, it still bugs me a little bit, because it's not how the next novel really picks up, is uh, the thing, when I started first realizing that the, the different forms of seeing the, the story didn't always match up exactly and it was intentional the the first novel ends with uh, arthur being asked if he wants to get something to eat and then mm-hmm. they're going to go to the restaurant at the end of the universe and that's where the novel ends mm-hmm. whereas in the tv series it becomes an aspect of the end of the first uh, book where an explosion occurs when they're trying to escape magrathia right mm. You know, and then and then they end up thinking they're dead, but they've actually been transported at that right. point. Blasted know. through a hole in the space-time continuum, I think. Yes. Yeah. Which yes. is probably the first time that I ever came across the phrase space-time continuum as a kid. And go, oh, that's a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we're prepared for it because in one of the earlier asides when Slarty Bartfast picks up Arthur on the planet of Magrathia after they've landed, and he takes Arthur to his laboratory, Arthur makes a statement that he was what is it he's having uh trouble with his lifestyle right. uh, something something along seem to be lines. having this tremendous difficulty with my lifestyle oh. <laughs> and which is why the whole loose lips sink ships thing because arthur's statement slips through uh a hole in space and comes out on a table between two warring races in another Uh-oh. galaxy that have all but destroyed civilization and their animosity towards each other. And it's very tense and it comes across and, and apparently in the other's language, it's a huge insult against his mother. Yep. 
you know, and so then they get into an even bloodier conflict, but eventually they discover the source of what had happened and, and they're human. The human, their fleet is heading, heading to earth to, to wreak revenge and havoc. And the entire <laughs> fleet has been swallowed by a small dog. Yep. <laughs> oh, wow. yes. Yes. Population and scale. Oh, good. Yes. It's and again, it's it's the it's the brilliance of his asides. No bearing mm. on the plot. It's just funny. It's just funny. I thought the to... film really made a great tribute to that aside storytelling by using the graphics and making it look like you were just reading a part of the Hitchhiker's Guide. Right. I just that that was brilliant. Again, with with the with the filmmakers clearly being huge loving nerds mm -hmm. uh their their use of the graphics in the film were such a great nod towards the graphics from the tv series i thought and just yeah. brilliant i've heard about done. that yeah, yeah yeah i need to go back and actually watch the tv series i've seen clips but i've actually not sat down and watched it Pre prepare yourself for mostly low production values right, right but but you're really there for the performances of the actors and the mm -hmm. computer graphics which were won awards because they were not actually done by computers but right. they did a good job of looking like they were they were animated oh yeah yeah very cool very cool, very cool. <laughs> and the thing that people are probably waiting for us to talk about <laughs> is the secret of life the universe and everything the actual answer the ultimate answer yes. the ultimate yeah. answer the ultimate yes. answer which uh which is 42 yeah and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is a huge thing among hitchhiker fandom where if you see somebody wearing something that says 42 you have a pretty good idea of how they roll yep yep absolutely it's and deeply ingrained in pop culture thank god <laughs> To where if we had, one of us picked up our smartphone right now and asked what the secret to life, the universe, and everything was, it would clearly tell us it was 42. Yep. And I, I'm sure you're the same as me, but like if you're out anywhere and you come across the number, you're probably taking a picture of it with your phone. Like if I'm, yeah. if I'm yeah. at a restaurant and I happen to pull 42 as my number, I'm like, yay, yeah. this is a good day. It's like us Star Wars nerds getting 66 as our exactly. order number. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nerding out. Right. It is the same thing. And I, I love that, you know, all the different stories about that number over the years and people trying to trying to create meaning for it somehow there must be a deep meaning douglas must have had some clever reason for coming up with this and just over the years he's like no no it's just it's a funny number you know one of the, he he had a couple of different answers over the years but one of the answers that he had was you know i was just sitting around trying to come up with what was a funny sounding number and i basically just decided that 42 was just funny enough but also sounded inoffensive enough that you could still introduce it to your parents. <laughs> the presentation of material is everything sometimes. Wow. And when mm -hmm. I was listening to the audio that I, had, uh, that I had gotten as a child and the voice that he was doing for deep thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You know, like, you know, tricky, you know, like the, the deep, yeah. yep. the, all, all, it just, the comic timing of it, like, 
I have the answer, but you're not going to like it. <laughs> you're really not going to like it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, staggering. Uh, it's such good stuff. Yeah. Um, I, and I thought some of the, the choices, if you look back to how it was being interpreted between the TV series and even the film, where you kind of had like, uh, for the philosophers in the TV series, it was like Scottish Highland Celt type guys. Right. Coming in, we were making the arguments. And then for the aliens in the film, it was like children. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like the different interpretation. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. And I actually I actually quite liked the little kids that they got mm -hmm. in, in the film. I thought they did a really good job of delivering that scene, which is a pretty sophisticated scene from a comic timing standpoint I, I really felt they kind of nailed that didn't they flash back to that form when something happened to one of the mice i I'm think kinda, so yeah i think they kind of brought yeah. that all full circle in the film well another one of my favorite bits that douglas said was someone because at, at one point when they're trying to find the ultimate question to go with the ultimate answer being 42 uh what was one thing and another they think that it might be that the ultimate question is what is six times seven, which, or no, what is six by nine rather? What what is six by nine? Forty. Oh, when they're pulling the uh, the Scrabble the, tiles, the letters out of a Scrabble bag, right? Yeah, and yeah. that obviously <laughs> that's that's part of what's wrong with the universe. And and Douglas said someone wrote to me and said that I was terribly clever because of course six by nine does equal forty two if calculated in base thirteen. And Douglas is like, nobody writes comedy in base thirteen. <laughs> he's not wrong so that's a smart answer <laughs> you're right i love it you, you people are thinking way too hard about this <laughs> as the math nerd that that would be me i'm like right oh right? yeah let's go there <laughs> nothing like a good base 13 joke <laughs> uh well, it's the thing that I actually use uh, from time to time if somebody lets me get away with it. There's this great Zaphod line where uh, when they've saved the heart of gold from being destroyed by the rockets, and clearly it was Arthur's idea. Mm -hmm. you know, Zaphod turns to Arthur and says, that was really good. That was really good, Earth man. You know, that was- Oh, that it was, was nothing. He goes, what, really? Okay. You know, yep. <laughs> You know, and, and Arthur yes, trying to geez. dig back into the compliment, but it's over with. No, you said yeah. it's not. Yep, we're moving on. <laughs> kind of a British uh, thing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Very British thing. Well, uh, what would you, what would you say is uh, the, the biggest impact that this has probably had on you? How that's maybe reflected in who you are as a person? <laughs> um. Like I said, it's 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 hard to describe it succinctly because the the comic sensibility and the 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 sense that you get when you read Hitchhikers when you know going along for the ride with with Arthur and Ford of just how weird and crazy and and in a, in some senses scary and dangerous the universe can be but if you just change your perspective a little bit it's really just kind of absurd and funny i think that's probably been the biggest 
takeaway for me that you know life life has all of those aspects to it it has times where it's terrifying and frustrating and and dangerous and weird but if you can for a moment kind of zoom back and and yeah. take a wider view of things uh you you can at least if not laugh at it you can at least recognize the absurdity of it all uh and and maybe at least have an ironic chuckle or two here and there that's that's probably the biggest thing and then coming in at a close second again is uh, he gave me douglas gave me a sense of the freedom to be funny with intelligence mm-hmm. to not to not be afraid to go for the smart joke mm-hmm. uh, and and to kind of leave the low hanging fruit alone you know mm. hey, punch punch up with your humor don't punch down mm. i like it what about you guys i think we all have a lot of voices in our heads you know but the medication helps the medication <laughs> helps but we we kind of know which voices we're looking for we in in different media that uh that attract us and we know which ones we don't like because we all have things that other people who we know adore but we hear the voice and it's like trying something you don't want to eat you yeah. just you know it's it's not for you it's it's not there and it was definitely one of those voices the first time i heard it in my head as i was reading as i was listening the the rhythm of what was being said the way it was being conveyed where i knew this was something that meant something to me and then yeah i saw out similar voices you know mm-hmm. like like i said you discovered neil gaiman and you're like this reminds me of the other thing that i like right pg you know? woodhouse pg woodhouse in a big way same mm. thing you know, and you find you find those things, and and uh, like I told you, I liked T. H. White, the Once and Future King, because to some extent he does the same sort of asides, the Douglas right. does within the narrative, yeah. you know, and that was written so many years even before that. Yeah. And uh, you know, anytime there's the chance of finding someone who does that, you know, like I'm I'm excited. There's a there's a female uh, British author who she's got a similar voice to that now that I enjoy uh, immensely. There's a book called The First 15 Lives of Harry August. Okay. Here we go. It's uh, Claire North. Okay. I'll look her up. Claire. Yeah. Because like you said, any, any, any recommendation from a fellow fan of this person kind of smells and tastes a little bit like this other thing that you love, yeah, count me in. Yeah, but Mythos and Heroes, sure. those two books. And, I mean, and for you guys, if, if you've not uh, experienced P.G. Woodhouse's writing, uh, Woodhouse was, according to Douglas, the, the most profound influence on his writing. Mm-hmm. And, and same with Stephen Fry. Like, they're, they're both are and were massive fans of, of Woodhouse as possibly the greatest comic writer in the English language ever. I'd put I'd put Douglas up there too, but uh, but if you haven't gotten into Woodhouse, n- not only is he hilarious in very similar ways, but the good news is he wrote over ninety five novels and over three hundred short stories, so you got a lot to read. Woodhouse was the one that created Chiefs, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm like, it's ringing a bell in my head. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it's good stuff. 
and Jeeves and Wooster, which yep. uh, Stephen Fry was in. Um, exactly. Playing exactly. Jeeves, yeah. Yep. It all just turns in on itself. It really okay. does. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a very intimate little world. <laughs> There's a, a writer named James Goss who recently, um, the Doctor Who episodes that Douglas himself wrote mm -hmm. never published as Target novels. Because hmm. when Target started doing the, the published novels, Douglas was too expensive for them. At that uh, point in time. He wasn't going to stop and write a Target novel for a Doctor Who episode. So James Goss has gone and written the novel with all of Douglas's original scripts for both The City of Death, which was one of his most popular, and uh, there's another one that he wrote. Shada. Shada. He did, yeah. they, he did the same thing with Shada. So you can get both of those right now. Wow. Those are out. And then there's a third one that was essentially what ended up becoming Life, the Universe, and Everything uh, mm -hmm. about the Cricket Man that was also right. a TV. So he has gone in and done all three of those now as novels that you can, you can go back and, and clearly hear Douglas. Right. <laughs> well, well, Peter, it's been a blast having you on yes. and we're going to definitely have you back for some other subjects that I know you are near and dear to as well. Anytime. Yeah. This has been a thrill for me. It's great. Peter, can you tell folks where to find you and your podcast? Sure. Uh, the podcast is called The Daily Good. Uh, it was basically my reaction to being... Uh, kind of frustrated with how the world has been going for the last several years and mm -hmm. the the endless sort of barrage of negative stuff that kept showing up on my phone. And wherever I turned to try to find some solace, you know, whether it was, you know, Facebook or Instagram or wherever, it kept creeping in. And I just wanted some, I wanted there to be some sort of a news source or some sort of a one-stop shop for just happy, ha I knew there were good news stories happening out there. Uh, but some of the websites that I found through them were kind of weird or full of too much, you know, ad clicks and stuff like that. And anyway, long story short, uh, after a while I realized, well, I have to do it myself. So it's a podcast okay. for a couple of good news stories, random bits of trivia, a musical recommendation, something to do with English language, uh, Monday through Friday. And it's on Apple podcast. It's on Stitcher. Uh, and there is a website, www.the-daily-good.com. It's all there. All right. Yeah, I'll make sure to get that information in the show description as well. So uh, if you're like me and you don't have a pen and paper when you're listening to podcasts, definitely look up the info uh, Thank so you. you can be sure to subscribe because uh, we all need po more positive messages to consume that's for sure agreed thank you for tuning in to this throwbacks episode of the gen x replay podcast to follow frankie between shows look for him at dance frankie h on twitter as frankie hagan on facebook and at his dance instructor or real estate websites dancefrankie.com and frankiehagan.com to follow me between shows, look for at Stephanie Does VO on Twitter and Instagram and Jacory on YouTube and Twitch. I'll put this info, a link to the Daily Good podcast by Peter Flahiff, and lots of other fun links in the description for this episode. Subscribe here so you don't miss our next throwbacks and other fun podcast episodes. And help us boost the signal on this podcast by sharing it with your friends. 
We're currently available on Anchor.fm, Apple, Google, and Spotify. Until next episode, be safe out there.